Right again, welcome to Big Sky Christian Fellowship. If you don't know me, most of you probably do. I'm Nielsen, I'm the next uh, generation pastor here. And my once a month sermon is up this week, so here, here I am again. Um, and I guess, um, talking about worship, I guess this morning we know who the true worshipers are, especially when it's a, a Sunday powder day. You always know the people that like, really love Jesus and really... <laughs> really like to come to church. So hopefully none of you are wishing that you would be on the mountains since I'm speaking. So let's just hope that none of you are regretting this decision. Um, so yeah, thanks for being with us. Um, during this time of Advent, we're talking about worship. Talking about worship. And Sarah did such a fantastic job last week. I don't know if there was a dry eye in the room. If you were here, it was fabulous. And she pretty much said everything there is to be said about it. So I'm going to try to add something to it because it was just so good and thorough and beautiful. So um, today I want to kind of discuss in terms of worship, uh, what is it and what does it look like? Sounds super basic, but um, what is it and what does it look like? And uh, eventually we're going to be reading from Luke 7, 36 to 50. But first I kind of want to have a short like introduction as to what is worship? What is it? Um, so when I was in Asia for a year, living in Thailand and traveling around, I saw a lot of, of worship happening. There was a lot of burning of incense in these Buddhist temples before a lot of different statues of Buddha. I mean, countless temples and just statues of Buddha. Um, there, there's these small spirit houses that would sit outside of these homes and properties and businesses that would have these tiny offerings of like food or maybe some drink or liquor to appease these um, somewhat mischievous spirits and to keep them happy. Some blatant examples of worship. I saw it everywhere all the time. You couldn't go anywhere without seeing a temple or a statue of Buddha or a spirit house. Um, however, worship is not usually this obvious or visible, right? It's not usually this blatant or external. We usually worship without thinking about it. It's usually very subconscious. It's usually an internal thing. Uh, we, in the West, we worship a lot of things like power, uh, money, and sex, and people, relationships, significant others, possessions, and hobbies. You know, can anyone say skiing, hunting, biking, fishing, right? There's a lot of worship going on even here, just not quite so blatant and obvious, right? Um, sometimes we even worship religion in and of itself instead of God, right? Sometimes we often just worship ourselves. I'm God. I'm in charge. I'm going to give myself what I want. So there's a lot of worship going on, whether you see it or not. It doesn't have to be as blatant as it was in Thailand or in Asia when I was there. So what, is, what does worship mean to you? We hear this word thrown around a ton in church in religion. I heard it all the time um, growing up, and a lot of times it just means what? Christians singing in church on a Sunday morning, um, coming to hear a sermon. Um, that's often what we think of it as, singing a few songs. That's, that's what worship is. But then you have Muslims bound in a, in a prayer in a, in a mosque. You have, again, Buddhists in a temple before a statue of Buddha. You have devout Hindus that, who bring their offerings to one of their many, many gods in one of the Hindu temples. Um, you have followers of more ancient animist religions worshiping an image, an idol, worshiping something of the earth that represents one of their spirits, right? Um, again, we kind of think of it in this really external sense of worship. Um, but aside from these external acts, what does worship really mean? Um, especially for a follower of Jesus, what does it really look like? That's what I hope to kind of cover today. Um, so for many of us, again, it's just something we kind of do do for an hour on Sunday morning, right? Just, I go to church, that's my worship time. That, that's what worship is. 
Um, it might be the time where we just sing a few songs. This is essentially how I grew up thinking about worship. It's kind of just a church service, a youth group singing a few songs. That's kind of how I thought of it growing up in church. That was my experience with what I thought of as worship. Uh, but is that really all worship is? Is that really all it comes down to? Uh, so what is worship and what is it? Um, what does it mean? I looked up some definitions. So there's a Hebrew word for worship, which I'll probably butcher. Um, Chad could probably help me out. It's called shaha. It means to depress, to bow down, to fall down flat. Pretty vivid picture of worship. Um, it's a picture of humility before Yahweh. Again, pretty vivid picture of what worship might look like. So in both Hebrew and Greek, there, there, there are these two categories of words for worship, both pretty external. Um, again, the first is about this body language that demonstrates um, respect and submission, again, to bow down, to kneel, to prostrate oneself. And then the second is about doing something for God that demonstrates sacrifice and obedience, to offer, to serve. So that's what we're looking at when we talk about the word worship. That's kind of how it's defined. Um, and there's sort of the boring English definition, which isn't nearly as cool as the, as the Hebrew word. It just basically means, as a noun, the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. Very kind of a boring definition, um, which, which kind of applies to some of the things I saw in Asia, right? Just this kind of expression of reverence or adoration towards the statue of Buddha, towards one of the Hindu gods. Um, and then the verb is to show reverence and adoration for a deity, to honor with religious rites. Again, it sounds kind of boring. I like the Hebrew definition a lot better of worship. So worship is not just what we do here on a Sunday morning. It's not just an act of going to church and singing a few songs, of serving and giving. Worship is a bit more than that. It's really a matter of the heart. It has to start with the heart. It's got to start in the heart. It has to lead to an authentic response, a lifestyle. And can I just say for myself, for all of us, God doesn't just want one hour of worship a week, right? He doesn't want just one hour of our week here as our worship, right? He wants a lot more than that. He deserves quite a bit more than that. So let's try to move beyond this kind of cliche, cookie-cutter image of being here in church for an hour a week for worship. It's way, way, way more than that, as we're going to see from the story that we're going to read about. He wants more than one hour of worship a week from us. So today, again, is about our foundation. I'm, I'm going to be a little repetitive probably with what I talked about the last time, but it's a very similar concept to Thanksgiving, right? Our worship is a response to who God is and what he's done for us. And we give back to God from what he's given to us. Just a lot like Thanksgiving, right? But I want to look at it from a little bit of a different angle and from a really specific story today. So, so we kind of talked about what is worship now? What is it and what does it look like in a really, real gritty down-to-earth story that we're going to read. Um, we're going to read from Luke 7, 36 to 50. I can't tell you how many times I honestly like, almost just ended up in tears while reading this story. It's, it's one of the most profound stories, I think, in the New Testament, maybe the whole Bible for me. Um, it's packed full of drama. It's just so good. So um, as we read it, just really put yourself in this story um, just really set yourself in this narrative and try to like figure out and think about what it would be like to be there, how it would feel to be in this story. It's pretty crazy. It's pretty ridiculous. So Luke seven thirty six to 50. So afterward, a Jewish religious leader named Simon asked Jesus to his home for dinner. Jesus accepted the invitation. When he went to Simon's home, he took his place at the table. 
In the neighborhood, there was an immoral woman of the streets known to all to be a prostitute. When she heard about Jesus being in Simon's house, she took an exquisite flask made from alabaster, filled it with the most expensive perfume, went right into the home of the Jewish religious leader, and knelt at the feet of Jesus in front of all the guests. Broken and weeping, she covered his feet with the tears that fell from her face. She kept crying and drying his feet with her long hair. Over and over, she kissed Jesus' feet. Then she opened her flask and anointed his feet with her costly perfume as an act of worship. When Simon saw what was happening, he thought, This man cannot be a true prophet. If he were really a prophet, he would know exactly what kind of sinful woman is touching him. You know, Simon's saying, does he really know what kind of woman this is? What is he doing? How is he allowing this? And Jesus says, Simon, I must have a word with you. I have a word for you. Go ahead, teacher. I want to hear it. It's a story about two men who were deeply in debt. One owed the bank $100,000 and the other one owed only $10,000. When it was obvious that neither of them would be able to repay their debts, the kind banker graciously wrote off the debts and forgave all that they owed. Tell me, Simon, which of the two debtors would be the most thankful? Which one would love the banker most? Simon answered, well, I suppose it would be the one with the greatest debt forgiven. You're right, Jesus agreed. Then he spoke to Simon about the woman still weeping at his feet. Don't you see this woman kneeling here? She's doing for me what you didn't bother to do. When I entered your home as your guest, you didn't think about offering me water to wash the dust off my feet. Yet she came into your home and washed my feet with her many tears and then dried my feet with her hair. You didn't even welcome me into your home with the customary kiss of greeting. But from the moment I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't take the time to anoint my head with fragrant oil, but she anointed my head and feet with the finest perfume. She has been forgiven of all her many sins. This is why she has shown me such extravagant love. But those who assume they have very little to be forgiven will love me very little. Then Jesus said to the woman at his feet, All your sins are forgiven. All the dinner guests said among themselves, who is the one who can forgive sins? They're a little skeptical of this. They're not quite okay with this situation. Then Jesus said to the woman, your faith in me has given you life. Now you may leave and walk in the ways of peace. All right, let's talk about this story. There's a lot going on here, huh? So remember the word, the Hebrew word for worship, shaha, that I mentioned at the beginning. To depress, to bow down, to fall flat. Is this not the perfect picture of worship? It's a perfect picture of humility before Yahweh in a heart sense, internal sense, and a very vivid external sense. This is the definition of of worship right here. This story says so much about worship, what it is, what it looks like. But if you're a first century observer, you know there is absolutely so much wrong with this picture. There is so much wrong with this picture if you're looking at it from the perspective of a first century observer in terms of a cultural and social and religious standpoint. There's a lot to, to pick at in this story. It doesn't seem like it should be happening, right? This is not appropriate. So for Simon and his guests, this must have been an incredibly awkward, incredibly awkward and uncomfortable moment. Think about how awkward you would feel. I mean, it's ridiculous what's going on here. I don't, I don't care whether you'd be religious or not. You'd be like, what? 
Like, there's a prostitute here, and she's kissing his feet, and she's anointing his feet. Like, this is totally inappropriate. We have to understand how big of a deal this was for the time, even for today. It's still ridiculous, even today. How absurd is this? So put yourself in that scene. It wasn't just outrageous. It was pretty much entirely inappropriate, what was going on here. If you look at it from an external point of view, from a religious point of view. So what in the world is going on here? What is happening? We can be asking about ourselves about the story. What is going on? So consider the setting in the three main characters. You have Simon the Pharisee in his home. You have the sinful woman and Jesus. So clearly Simon probably wasn't a very hostile Pharisee towards Jesus. He was probably a little curious about him. This guy's a prophet. I want to see what he's all about. Is he who he says he is? Is there, is there something to this guy? He was not obviously a very hostile Pharisee. He was just curious. So he invites him to his house um, for a meal. But he's clearly lacking in his show of hospitality. He's really lacking in the, in the customary show of hospitality, right? So he's not sure quite what he thinks about this guy yet. He's not very, very friendly and very, very welcoming. Then you have this woman. You know, She has a suspect reputation, to put it mildly. She is known to be a prostitute. Um, not very high in the social hierarchy here, right? Not at all. Probably the very bottom. And she's an uninvited guest, which we have to remember, um, for us in the West, um, it's a little bit different. Maybe it wasn't all that uncommon in that context. You know, um, Private life wasn't the same as it is here. O- doors were open. Homes were open. She had you know, the opportunity to walk in to a home, but she was still an uninvited guest, and she wasn't one that you'd want in your home, probably, if you're uh, a Pharisee, a religious leader. Not the kind of woman you want to, be, uh, to have in your home. You don't want that getting around to people that you had a prostitute in your home, right? So, presumably this woman just comes to anoint Jesus' feet with oil. But she enters the house and suddenly she's overcome with such an intense emotion she can't even open the jar before she starts weeping. She can't even get to the act of worship she was there to do before she starts weeping at his feet. And now the story becomes saturated with drama. And gosh, I love a good drama. Any book, any movie, ask anyone who knows me, I love a good drama. And this story is about to get dive headlong into drama. It's amazing. If this were a movie, my gosh. So again, put yourself in this situation. So not only as a first century woman, didn't have a whole lot of rights, a lot of them were basically considered property, but also on top of that, a notorious sinner, again, a prostitute. Um, Think about this. There's absolutely no way she puts herself in this position. Absolutely no way she goes to the feet of Jesus in a room full of not just all men, but these religious authorities who are men, unless... She's had some sort of radical, life-changing, heart-transforming, spiritual encounter with the person of Jesus. That's the only reason that she's going to enter this room with all these men and make basically a fool of herself. That's the only reason she's going to do this. And that's just the beginning, right? It gets so much better. So again, place yourself in this scene. She not only comes into this room and approaches Jesus, but goes a step further. She begins to weep uncontrollably. I imagine her weeping uncontrollably at the feet of Jesus. And when I was thinking about this, I was like, man, I wonder what she had experienced that caused her to do this. You cannot make that up. Like, what crazy, amazing thing had she experienced that caused her to do this? Something crazy was going on here. So she wets his feet with her tears. She proceeds to let her hair down, which to us is no big deal. But no decent woman would do that in public in the first century. It's ridiculous. That was totally inappropriate and a big no-no in that context. So she lets her hair down, a big no-no for a woman in the first century. Again, she's wetting 
his feet with her tears. She starts to wipe his feet with her hair that she has just let down, which is, again, totally inappropriate in that context. And then she kisses his feet repeatedly. Like, it just keeps getting more and more ridiculous and foolish if you're in this setting. Like, by this time, you know, you know that awkward situation, you're just kind of looking around, trying to look at the scene, but, like, try, but you still want to look at it, but you just can't because you're so embarrassed for the woman, for Jesus. I imagine that's what these guys are doing. They're probably, like, blushing, like, you know... I'm not going to judge, but maybe they knew this woman too in a way that they shouldn't have. I'm just saying. You never know. You never know what's going on here, right? So a lot of awkwardness going on. And then again, she's not even done yet. In a single moment, she pours out a perfume so costly. It's so costly as to be worth whatever you make in a year. She pours out a perfume that's worth your year's wages in a single moment. Man, okay, you make $100,000. It's gone. One moment over his feet and again is wiping his feet with her hair. So in this moment, she gave a couple things. She gave something of extremely high value, the costly perfume. That's a very external act of worship. But she also gave something very intimate and personal, right? Her tears. You can't fake the tears. You can fake the other worship, but you, man, you definitely can't be faking the tears in this moment. She gave the perfume and she gave her tears, a very internal and a very external act all in one moment, right? What an outrageous picture of worship. I don't really need to say anything about it. This story speaks for itself. It's ridiculous. Again, this is absurd. But something's going on in her heart that causes her to do this. And Jesus recognizes it because he's not religious like the other guys. He's not upset. He knows what's going on. The other guys just can't see it. I'm going to talk about that in a second. So this story tells us two things about worship. I'm not going to drive them too hard, but worship begins with the heart, number one. It's got to begin with the heart. And this is the internal aspect. This is what got her there in the first place. This is what got her there in the first place. You can't fake what's inside. Yeah, your heart can maybe deceive you sometimes and sometimes not sure how you feel, but you can't fake this kind of heart posture. You just can't. This is what got her there. And, and can you imagine how afraid she probably was to approach Jesus in this setting? Do you imagine how much fear and anxiety there must have been around this? But there was something going on. She knew. She's like, I have to go. How can I not? I have to go. This man, Jesus, he's worth it. I have to go do this. There's something that's happened to me, and I have to go do this for Jesus. She didn't care how awkward or anxious or how afraid she was. She had to go do this. There's no other way around it. Number two, worship moves us to respond. This is the external aspect. This is what she did when she came to Jesus. When she was at his feet. And yeah, this part, she could have faked it. She could have done it as just an act of religion or duty or a way of kind of saying thank you. But what does she have to gain by doing that? By faking it? By pretending? Absolutely nothing to gain by this act of worship. So, and you see this religious response, right? Religion says, how ridiculous is that? Religion says, how outrageous. Religion says, what a waste of money. What a waste of resources. That's what, that's, what, that's what the religious response is to this situation. What a waste. What's she doing? This is stupid. She should leave. But again, she knew this man, Jesus, deserves everything I had. And she knew something important that I think we forget. It is impossible to give too much to Jesus. Jeez, did she have something that I don't have? It is impossible to give too much to Jesus. So how differently would we live in that understanding? I'm like really convicted by that. Because um, 
I don't want to give him everything sometimes. She's like, it's impossible for me to give too much, which is why I can dump out a year's worth of perfume in one moment. It's impossible. Again, I'm so convicted by that. So this woman worshipped in such an extravagant way because her heart had been undeniably and radically transformed by a personal encounter with Jesus. A personal encounter is so important. Not just knowledge, a personal encounter with Jesus. She had found such forgiveness and love and acceptance and grace. And hear this out. That should have been impossible for someone like her from a religious person, from a religious community. She had no hope of acceptance or forgiveness or belonging in a religious community. But then she found Jesus and everything changed. Everything changed. She found something that should have been impossible by those standards, but she found it in Jesus. And after she met Jesus, she didn't care what her worship looked like. She didn't care what it cost her. She knew that Jesus is worth everything. So we don't have to worship exactly like this woman did. But this, this, this teaches us something. Our worship or lack of worship answers a very important question. And I'm asking myself this question. It's what is in our hearts? What or who do we love? So as human beings, we're created to worship something, to give ourselves to something. Like we cannot get around that fact. You will worship something. You will give yourself to something. Um, it's impossible not to. We are created for that. So, what we do worship, what we do love, or what we follow, is a reflection then of what's in our hearts. What you worship, who you worship, reveals who or what you have given your heart to. Who or what you have given yourself to. Again, worship has to begin with the heart, and it's going to show up in one way or another. It's just going to show up. We have to worship something. Now, let's talk about the Pharisee. This is really interesting. Talk about Simon. What we need to realize about this other end of the story, Simon, is that his rudeness towards Jesus, his lack of hospitality, it was basically just as outrageous as the worship of the woman, right? We think about the woman a lot. We don't think about the other side. His lack of hospitality was just about as outrageous in terms of the cultural standards, his lack of hospitality, um, as the worship of the woman, right? We have two things going on here. So sadly... Uh, As with the Pharisee, there's something important here. Religious familiarity um, or skepticism towards Jesus and the gospel is going to lead to apathy or distance or just a general unbelief, right? Just like this Pharisee. So again, his heart posture towards Jesus is shown in the way he expresses himself and the way he shows a lack of hospitality. You could say a lack of worship. So the intimate, forgiven sinner, the prostitute, did for Jesus what the aloof and self-righteous Pharisee would not do for Jesus. A crazy thought, isn't it? Kind of upside down. She showed hospitality. You could say true worship. And we can ask ourselves, which one am I? Which one am I? Sometimes I'm a little bit of the distant, skeptical um, Pharisee. And it shows up in the way that I do or don't worship. I want to be the woman, but sometimes I'm the Pharisee. So are we the distant, self-righteous Pharisee or the intimate, broken sinner? He wants the intimate, broken sinner over the religious, aloof, distant Pharisee any day. Any day. Do we know we're the broken sinner saved by grace? That's how we find intimacy. So, so, so how does your worship or lack thereof reflect 
your, understa your understanding or experience of God or your lack of understanding and experience of God. All right, so Brennan Manning, one of my favorite authors, says, in a, in a world where the only plea is not guilty, what possibility is there of an honest encounter with Jesus who died for our sins? We can only pretend we're sinners and only pretend we're forgiven. It sounds a lot like the Pharisee. We can just pretend we're sinners and thus only pretend we're forgiven if we're like the Pharisee, right? There's no real understanding of our brokenness and our sin, of our need for Jesus if we're the Pharisee. So Brennan Manning also says, you will trust, you could say worship in the place of trust, you will trust him to the degree that you know you are loved by him, which sounds a lot like the woman in this story. So again, not to get too repetitive, but can you imagine what it was like for this woman to know for the first time probably in her life or since she had become a prostitute that she could actually be forgiven and loved and accepted and made new. Again, an impossible thing for her until she met Jesus. And not only that, but all those things just as she was and not as she should be before she ever changed, before she ever responded. She was loved just as she was and not as she should be. So... Again, the experiential understanding and encounter with the person of Jesus changed her heart and her life forever and made her worship with extravagance. So just sit on that for a little bit. So as far as a practical response, some, something we can ask ourselves, and Todd, Todd Meredith is going to dive more into this um, next week, but ask the question, what do you have right now? What are you good at? What brings you joy? What makes you feel alive? Ask yourself that question. And the answer to that is probably an indication of how you were created to worship. The simple answer to that question is probably how you were created to worship. Way more than just showing up here, listening to me talk for a while, singing some songs. Um, I think it's way more fun to worship sometimes when you're just doing what you love, doing what you were made to do. Um, think about it. It's like the beauty of giving back to to God like Sarah with her songs, um, like this woman with her perfume, giving back to God what's, from what's been given to us. Best way to worship. So just like anything created, worships its creator by being exactly what it was meant to be. So it was for us. Think, think of a bird that sings its song. It doesn't think about it. It just does it. A tree that moves in the wind or gives shade doesn't try to do that. It just does it. Um, rain that waters the earth, a plant that produces food, a flower that smells really good. These things aren't trying to be that. They just are. And by being what they are meant to be, they worship. That's how it is for us, too. So it's the greatest act of worship we can give. It's just being, doing just what we were created for, which is to worship this really unfathomable, outrageously good and loving God who is towards us as he was towards this woman. That's the best way to worship. Again, worship moves us to respond. Just be who you're created to be, and you're going to love worshiping God, acknowledging him in the things that you love to do that you were created to do. All right, so let's start to wrap this up. So true worship has, has a power to bring um, freedom in our lives because it's choosing to believe God is who he says he is and that I am who he says I am. You think about how this worship freed this woman from so much sin and guilt and shame and fear and rejection, and it can, it can free us from that as well. Uh, Mary Oliver, one of my favorite poets, said, When we pray to love God perfectly, surely we do not mean only 
as in only perfectly. So your worship is never going to be perfect. It's never going to be unflawed. You're going to have mixed motives sometimes. That's fine. Just like the woman, just give him what you have. He doesn't care if it's imperfect or if it's flawed or it's mixed motives. Just give him what you have. That's all he wants because guess what? It builds relationship. Um, It changes your perspective. And really, um, God just loves your worship. He loves when you do what what he has created you to do. He loves when you give back to him. It brings him a lot of joy. That's a good enough reason for me. It just makes him happy. And it makes me happy. And when, when he's in his proper place in our lives, when worship puts him in his proper place in our lives, I, I believe everything else will just begin to fall into its proper place around that. So, and I really think this woman represents um, all the broken and, and kind of sinful, needy people in the world who are looking and waiting for something more. Just like we're kind of doing during the season of Advent, waiting, thinking, reflecting on Jesus coming. It reflects, I think, a lot of humankind. Um, I think she is humankind, past, present, and future. As we search through this kind of inner darkness and tension for acceptance and belonging and intimacy. Um, So again, we long innately to worship something. We long innately to worship someone. We need something to worship something of worth. And Jesus shows up with this very thing we've been looking for, right? This intimacy, this forgiveness, this love, this acceptance that we've all been so desperately waiting for. Whether you know it or not, we want it. And he shows up with it. So he came, he's coming, he's here to save us, and that's why we worship. Just like this woman. And how this woman responds is, I think, how we're called to respond in our own way. I'm not going to ask you to fall down on the floor, right, flat. I'm not going to ask you to kneel down. That's between you and God. But there's something to this response. So again, I said this last time. Sorry to be a broken record, but an extravagant God means an extravagant response, right? Extravagant God means an extravagant response. And we worship extravagantly, extravagantly because we have been extravagantly loved and forgiven. So just give him what you have this morning. That's all he desires. And let's pray and then go into communion. Lord, thank you for what you've shown us um, of yourself in this story. Um, when some of us um, in here, we know that we're broken. We feel like that woman. We feel um, some of the feelings of shame and guilt. Maybe regret, Lord, and God, they're the ones you're looking for today. God, we, we can't respond to you. We can't accept your love and forgiveness if we don't really recognize that we actually need you, God. And, and for those of us who are more of in the boat of the Pharisee, God, we're kind of skeptical. We're just aloof. We're a little bit distant. We can take care of ourselves. Lord, would, would you show us, God, that the only way to really know you and worship you is to admit that we're just super in need, broken, God, that no matter how good I think I am, God, that I really, really need you, Lord. So speak to us whatever boat we find ourselves in today. Um, Speak to us through communion. Speak to us through this song, Lord. Show us how we're made to worship you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.